what are the things that a salesperson gets that dopamine hit over? And it's knowing that this prospect you're trying to get hold of is looking at your pod or has shared your pod. You know, so if they've looked at your pod, your cold outreach has worked. If they've shared your pod with their own team, they're interested. Welcome to the Small Talk podcast brought to you by Small World, the agency that builds scale up brands. I'm Dan. I'm Harvey. Rory, Nick, really excited to have you here today. I feel like for me personally, this has been a long time in the making just because I've followed a lot of your guys' content across all the different things that you've done for quite a while now. And in particular, I I love seeing B2B brands that want to act a a bit differently, which is definitely something that Trumpet, your relatively new venture, is is, is trying to do. Before we get into that, I'd really love to, for those who don't know, have a, a quick introduction to both yourselves in your own words and I guess what you've done coming up to Trumpet, but then also the elevator pitch for Trumpet itself. Okay, I'll let you do the elevator pitch. (laughs) I see I'm Nick. I started at L'Oreal doing marketing. So I was there for four or five years doing brand marketing in their professional division. Worked my way up to a marketing manager of one of the brands there. Then decided that the corporate world wasn't right for me. So set up a company called Design My Night in 2010. It's myself and my best friend from university, uh, Andrew, and we scaled that. Uh, We sold it in 2019 and yeah, then took sort of a year off during COVID and then started ideating on Trumpet and brought Rory in with us uh, and the rest will be history, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, Rory, I've spent the last five, six years in B2B SaaS sales tried every tool out there, lived and breathed the space across enterprise, across SMB, leading teams, growing teams, uh, selling direct and yeah, just felt this pain point which Trumpet is solving. So I feel very fortunate to be able to reconnect with Nick and Andrew, be solving the the pain and I guess the, the quick pitch, the problem that we're addressing is B2B sales cycles are getting longer, they're getting more complex and there's more stakeholders than ever involved in those decision-making processes and there's just so much noise out there. Like in the last two years, for example, email outreach has increased by 70%, uh, reply rates have dropped by 30%. It's just difficult. And we're addressing all of that with this concept of pods, as we call them, pods being microsites. So interactive, collaborative, automatically personalized spaces that can be used all the way from cold outreach right through to onboarding. So one link to centralized buyer journeys. And that's it. Was that 60 seconds? That's pretty good. Well, well rehearsed, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> Before I jump into, I guess, yeah, the, the well, how, how you raised funding for it and, and the actual idea itself. How did you guys meet? What's, what was the backstory there? Well, Rory used to work at Catapult, which was a hospitality business and sort of just reached us, reached out to us back in the day when we we're at DMN. Not, not fanboying at all. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, we just stayed connected and luckily, to be fair. And then when we were like ideating on Trumpet, Andrew and I just thought, back to Rory and we then knew that Rory gone on and he was like leading sales at Hotjar for EMEA and we all got on really well back in the day as well so we were just like oh yeah like if if he wanted to uh, Rory would be the perfect person to to join us on this journey and luckily he wanted to brilliant yeah brilliant it's a good it's a good I guess I've talked to a lot of like founders, et cetera, and some of them being solo founders, I guess we're all lucky enough to have somebody with us is like a, a partner, I guess you would say, right. It's, it's always interesting. Like I always almost say to like my girlfriend that Har- Harvey is more <laughs> kind of my partner than her in a sense. It's your work marriage. Exactly. My yeah. work wife. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's always interesting to hear like how people meet in the different ways, ways they do. Sometimes they're friends, like I suppose with, you know, your, your first co-founder and similar to, to mine, but then sometimes it's just people people that you remember I guess having like a shared pain point or like a, a shared thing that you're angry about or excited about or whatever that might be so it's good to hear that kind of leads me into the next bit which is obviously you guys raised and forgive me if this is wrong but 1.6 million pre-seed right and by I guess your guys own mission probably could have taken on more as well and kind of you know luck, luckily had other offers and of course that's down to a lot of factors not least kind of previous experience and and the, the, the makeup of the team but I think a large part of that and both of you are good at doing this both in like like short, short format ways as well, but also through the way that you guys speak and clearly that 60 second pitch. How important is having like 
a brand story or a a story or and we'll talk about the different types of story that your brand can have but it, when you're going into back going into pitch to the different types of investors from angels to institutional how important is it to have possibly even that first slide on your deck that is the emotion behind the brand or the per, or the personal story or the personal pain point or the thing that arguably irrationally sells the business whilst the figures sell the rational part of the business how important is that I personally think it's super important. You know, if you're going to embark on this sort of three, five, seven, whatever year journey it's going to be, you've got to really feel that pain and like live and breathe it. And it's got to resonate. You know, if you're just doing it for the sake of building a business, then, you know, you'll, you'll probably get bored pretty quick. And I think, yeah, they need to know that it's come from somewhere where like it's meaningful and you've kind of experienced what your customers are going to experience and they can relate to you. You can relate to them. It's not always the case. It's not a must, but that's how I saw it. But I feel like Nick has seen quite a few decks. So (laughs) I think like I think yeah that's that's exactly right and then d- depending who you're pitching to so like we were spoke to angels and VCs and obviously VCs the brand story is the vision so I think as Rory said they want you to have lived and breathed the problem um and it's great if you've been in that industry for so long but they obviously want to see well how is this going to be a billion dollar business and that is your your vision story which again is is another brand story that might not be where you are today, obviously, but it's where you want to take the product, take the brand, take the communication, take the team. I think you need to sell that pretty quickly to a VC for them to get hooked to that it could be a goer or not. Mm. And what? And so you would say, so for instance, for an angel, would you say it's more about the personal founder story and, and they're, they're investing maybe in, in you as a person? What's the dif- what would you say the difference is between like telling that brand story to an angel and telling that brand story to a VC or an institutional investor? Yeah, I think angel investors are definitely more into the the emotional connection with the founder, the founders. Like, do they, do they feel that A, they've got the smarts to do this, they've got the determination to do this, and actually just do I like that person that I could, you know, bounce off that person? Like, I, I'm an angel investor as well, and I speak quite regularly to the founders. You know, a, a lot of them have become friends of mine. So I think that connection is quite important and also the returns so like an angel you want 10 20x returns and you're very happy with that so actually it doesn't need to become a unicorn it could become a depending when you get in the valuation but it could be like a 50 million or 100 million dollar business and then as an angel you're getting great returns but as a vc they need it to be the 100x return the unicorn so i think you're also just looking at different scopes of how big the business can be yeah. And I guess specifically then, what was that slide in your deck? What was that story? What kind of theatre did you play when you were speaking to different investors? Obviously, you've obviously got a massive background in sales. Probably on the other side of it, Nick, you were being pitched by a lot of people trying to sell you things with Design design My Night. Like, what was that kind of personal story or not even personal story, maybe vision for the future that you slapped up on the first slide, would you say? Or is it changing? Is it? It's always changing. No, I think... The main thing we, we sort of tried to identify and bring to the forefront was the shift that we're seeing. I think for the last few years, everything's been focused on sales enablement. Like, let's give salespeople the tools to sell better. And there's just, there's so many now. And I think a lot of them just don't get used. Whereas we try to take, kind of shift the focus towards buyer enablement. Like give buyers a beautiful journey, remove friction, give them the right information at the right time. And that will only like work in your favor. So I think we we tried to highlight the problems that sales, sales in general has gone through, like B2B sales, the last sort of five or 10 years and the shift that we're starting to see and how Trumpet was perfectly placed to address that both from team perspective, technology, but also background as well. And then also I think the, the growing market for, for sales across the world uh, and SaaS in general is not slowing down. So I think those on my side were the, the sort of two key ones, but not sure about you. Yeah, every business has sales. Whatever business you're in, there's a sales element to it. And I think when you're like pitching a TAM to a VC, it's 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 huge. So I think that gets them very excited. I think also we we sort of sold the vision similar to Slack where Slack started in the dev land and they loved that tool. And then it suddenly spread out to the rest of the team. So their land and expand was dev and then the rest of the team. And for us, it was sales was our dev of Slack. We knew they would love the tool and they would see instant results. But then you can move into the marketing team and you can move into the customer success team and you can move into the account management team. And we've got comms teams using it. So actually 
I think that excited a lot of VCs, the land and expand that actually every team in a business could use Trumpet apart from dev, so sort of reverse slacked. And I think that got them very excited at the potential of how big it can be. Mm, that That is really interesting. It's a bit like, um, I don't know if you guys have ever used or heard of like Pitch, which I guess is technic- in some ways a competitor to you guys, but maybe a comparator in ways. It's like something that we've we've looked at and it's basically like a, a more beautified version of like Google Slides in a way, possibly like less functionality than what you guys are, are trying to promise. But it's kind of the same with them, right? Like, well, well, everybody in every team needs to pitch something at some point or another. So this can be a tool that kind of works across that. Whereas Google Slides, maybe, obviously they're not really selling Google Slides, but it's kind of just seen as like a, you know, make of it what you will kind of tool. Yeah. Um, and largely just for like presenting decks internally and stuff like that, right? We integrate with them. Um, so yeah, like we, at Trumpet, we want like the pods to be centralized hubs of all tools you already use to make your pitching better. So we integrate with Google Slides, we integrate with Pitch. One of our advisors was a, a VP at Pitch as well. So yeah, I think they've obviously done amazing things and stuff we can learn from for sure. Uh, you mentioned Slack there and you mentioned particularly, you mentioned um, how they as a business landed and expanded. But I guess I want to touch on more more so as a brand, I guess, how they sort of land, landed and expanded and kind of made it such a it's such a viral tool to use. Right. One of the things that from like stalking your guys LinkedIn and just liking your LinkedIn content in general. Now I'm, I'm fangirling. One of the things you guys posted about was, you know, using pods and, or like when you successfully make a sale, like confetti cannons coming off and you guys testing out all the different types of confetti cannon. It is very reminiscent of brands like Slack, MailChimp, Pipedrive to a lesser extent. They've got a couple of features like that and I've, I've used that to an extent. All of them do this kind of, they take something in a B to a boring, supposedly boring category and they just add features that make it, or not, I guess not even features, just flourishes that kind of make it a bit more fun. So Slack obviously did that to kind of email, right? And it might be that the way that it actually grew amongst some teams is just because they're like, oh, so I can send gifts easily, right? And like that, it sounds ridiculous, right? That's nothing you'd ever put on your website to say the number one feature is it sends gifts. But like that's the, the thing that made it viral and made it fun to spread and share with people in the same way that, you know, Messenger and those types of apps that we used as people to people, I guess, back in the day kind of were, were fun to use. How important do you think it is to build those or make sure that you're, you know, cognizant of building those features into Trumpet. And then are there any other things that you've got on the horizon you can talk about that you're building in that are things within the UI UX that make it fun to use, that make it a, a fun brand experience beyond actually just being a functional brand experience? We like salespeople aren't designers. Like I was never very good at design. So we wanted the platform to be as easy to use as possible, but as enjoyable as well. Because on the buyer side, like it is very much about making it a beautiful buyer experience. We don't want to just put content into an online space and they digest it. We want it to be interactive and engaging and, you know, like a head turn moment. Why shouldn't it be for the actual users creating that experience as well? So everything from drag and drop to like you put in a URL, the auto branding, these little moments. I think that's been important to us from the start and also sympathizing with who is using the platform, knowing that, you know, we've all done sales for over 15 years combined, removing the headache of what does good design look like or what should I include? What shouldn't I include? And yeah, I think those little touches go down quite nicely, but it's, it's always been important to us from the get go when we're building it ease of use and those, I guess, kind of light bulb moments of how they can use Trumpet and actually what it can do. But yeah, definitely more to come. When you mentioned MailChimp, I remember at Design My Night, I had like a moment of love when they, we messaged their customer success team, which I imagine was in America. And like a week later, we got a personalized written postcard from them with a t-shirt and a sticker. And we were just asking them a question on customer support. And you're just like, okay, that's, that's how you sort of build brand love. And I think lots of brands do that now, but that was sort of back in the day. And I think MailChimp, as you say, were probably one of the first, uh, you know, it's a chimp is their logo and stuff. So they obviously have a lot of fun with that as well. Like a chimp has got nothing to do really with emails. I remember, I always remember that from, from DMN in the early days and being a bit wowed by that. So I think whatever we do at Trumpet is you know, from our own swag and t-shirts and stuff, but making every engagement with the product feel quite personal and that we would not only want you to enjoy it, but we actually care as well, like the results you're going to get from Trumpet. And I think the way we 
talk so we we're quite casual and jokey and like our onboarding emails are quite funny we think um, maybe just we think they're funny but they're not just like boring onboarding videos they've got jokes in we have fun with it because like, if your users aren't having fun then like what's the point like you can still build a very functional tool that does the job but actually brings you little moments of joy uh, i remember trello just had unicorns just floating around the screen just randomly and you're just like huh that's nice yeah. uh, and, that, and then you just carry on using Trello so like the the confetti cannon you talked about uh, which is on one of our sort of mutual action plan widgets where you work with the buyer to complete a plan so you know once you complete the plan why not just give both of you a little spark of joy and like blow confetti all over the screen yeah I think we're constantly looking to put those sort of light moments within the product mm. Yeah, see, again, it's one of those things that seems would seem ridiculous if you wrote it in like a guide to brand building or guide guide to business, right? But they are they are the little things that kind of add up to build what everyone's now obsessed with, which is brand experience. Okay, how do I stop people from churning out with this product? And less so, less defensively than that, how do I make people want to spread this product? How do I spark word of mouth within like tech which is different to when you have like a physical product and it's actually something that people can either see which builds like good mental availability because you can actually sort of see well mental and physical availability because you can actually see it but also it's like a, a talking point for people to, to actually talk about right i'm a big believer in that and please do keep going it's, it's actually interesting to know um whether yeah you mentioned the i don't know why for some reason but this was stuck in my head about like the, the trumpet a bit like the like one of probably the earliest and greatest example of like a tech brand mascot, the famous Microsoft paperclip mm-hmm. little word paperclip. <laughs> yeah, that is like, <laughs> I don't even know, but he's now mocked and derided. And I think that's wrong. Uh, Cause that is like the earliest example that's of like the, the MailChimp yeah. or the, mm. whatever it might be kind of like almost like a pop culture, yeah. you know, icon now, uh, maybe not pop culture, but like a business culture. <laughs> Do you think we've become more casual as a society as uh, as buyers so as a buyer of trello and of mailchimp or whatever as a society we're less you know we're less prim and proper as we were like you don't wear a suit to work now and, and things like that so actually if brands can connect with you on a more casual level but still deliver a great product mm. then it resonates better it's really interesting i, I totally agree i think t- to your point there like the the lines between work and play have blurred ever more so and there's a negative and a positive way of looking at that. the negative way is like toxic work culture and the fact that people you know like hustle culture the toxic element of hustle culture where it's like you know you never switch off always be thinking about work work 24 7 work till you're dead sort of thing which is that by all means you know definitely toxic and everyone kind of agrees by that but there's a super positive way about looking at, at that as well which is you know it's no longer this idea of like a job for life and like a job is something that you do so you can live the other you know eight hours of your life in a day or whatever it's like no you can have something that is like works in tandem something that you enjoy doing something that's fun to do something that you don't mind talking about down the pub and it's not that you just chat about football and you know where you're going out that night living for the weekend etc there there i think we now at least i guess in cap- capital cities or big metropolitan areas we live in this world where there's i feel like people have a much healthier relationship with enjoying work or or being there's a lot more entrepreneurs for instance and even since covid i think that's that's happened i mean we're testament to that sitting in in the room today all of that adds up to the fact that people are more susceptible to this blurring of lines between like work um work and play or work and non-work life and i think that's being now being represented in brands it's actually interesting to see or, or start to see if some brands in the consumer space start to become a bit more like professionalized or professionalized the wrong word but i'd say like sleek is, is the way the way to put it um you see a lot of brands for instance in like fashion and beauty do that already or luxury for instance and they come across arguably more like the tech brands of old or e- even there's you know some consumer brands some of my favorite consumer brands like uh, nugs in america and even like elements of like this the plant-based meat brand over here acting a bit like tech brands almost nugs is the best example of that they release their like, whenever they release least like a new plant-based nugget it's like nugs 3.0 or version 2.8 or whatever that might be and they're like starting to borrow more from like um tech brands almost it's a great question i think ultimately it's just it's this blurring of the lines between the two which might continue to happen as people start to work for themselves and start to have several different ways of working and and like lines of blood 
Yeah, I suppose we like Slack jokes and like out of hours, exactly. your Slack, you know, GIFs and actually Slack was a work platform and is a work platform, mm. but you can still sort of socialise on yeah. it. Same thing with like WhatsApp, for instance. Would you say it's a work platform or would you say it's a, a social platform? Like it, yeah, it's difficult. People have different rules around yeah. what, you know what I mean? Like, but it, for me, it's very much both. Like I, I have in the same breath that I'm chatting to Harvey, my business partner about a work thing, I might send him like a clip of something, an article about football or something like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, mm. it's interesting that it's not like a, there's a much, there isn't as, as big of a black and white type of nature of the, the way that we interact with these things anymore. Kind of, well, it doesn't lead me on to my next bit, but there's one bit that we forgot and jumped over back, back within there after getting lost in that, which was a great question, by the way, which is more around emotion, basically selling selling emotion, not features, effectively. I, th- I think is how you put it, Rory, but something along those lines, I'm probably paraphrasing, but it was one of the parts that was actually in your employee letter, which I thought was brilliant as well, like your employee onboarding. And I think that's one of the things that you're doing really well is building this like employer brand as well alongside the actual brand that is you know consumer facing but yeah one of the things you kind of said is like you know we sell emotion not features i wonder if you could touch on what do you think the prevailing emotion trumpet is trying to sell is like what it, what do you want a user to feel it's like mailchimp were really good at this and in, in being they had like from their ui to ux but they really made they understood who their customer was which was largely at the beginning, like small business owners or, you know, smaller, smaller startups and, and companies that were, were, were making their way. And for them, sending an email marketing campaign was actually like sending a, a multi-million dollar advertising campaign. And they wanted them to feel like it was like that, like it was a big achievement almost. You, you've got this out, you've got this thing out. And they would have like... Um, like yeah UI and UX so when you press the button it would be like congratulations it's launched and it would be like this big celebration etc because they really understood and, and understood how their customer felt about launching an email it wasn't just another thing to do in the day it was like part of their livelihood so I was wondering yeah how I know you guys talk to your customers quite a lot but what do they existingly feel and then how do you want them to feel after they for instance close a sale or create their first pod or like what are the emotions that you're trying to inspire i guess in in people that use trumpet i think that on my side is to create a feeling of like being connected with their buyers so up until now sales has been very traditional it's seen as transactional and there's always going to be that element to it you can't remove that but i think increasing both collaboration but interaction with buyers and like really helping them see that you're going above and beyond you're trying to help them will only increase to feeling connected with them and we're seeing more and more buyers proactively reaching out to users of trumpet and saying oh you made our life really easy like everything you put together in that link oh that was that was great to be able to share it with the team you know can you let me know what that was these kinds of things they love being sold to in this way because it's making their life easy and if i look back at the last five years in sales i don't remember once where a sale a, a buyer reached out to me afterwards and said oh that was really great like great sales process i really enjoyed going through that journey but we just we keep getting people say that and i don't think you can really put a price on that emotion from a buyer and for a salesperson to kind of hear that feedback. And that's what they're reaching out to us and saying, I think we want these interactions between buyers and sellers to become more collaborative. Like everyone's trying to reach the same goal here. Let's just try and do it in the most supportive, transparent and easy to navigate way. So for me, it's creating a feeling of being connected, but I mean, there's a whole bunch of others. I'm not sure what you think. No, I think and linked to that is is when those moments happen, we try and trigger something in the product, whether it's like the confetti or it's an email we'll send them. So it's like, what are the things that a salesperson gets that dopamine hit over? And it's knowing that this prospect you're trying to get hold of is looking at your pod or has shared your pod. You know, so if they've looked at your pod, your cold outreach has worked. If they've shared your pod with their own team, they're interested before Trumpet you wouldn't really know that as a salesperson until you got the email saying, oh, let's have another call. So we've got all these triggers that is obviously we're tracking the usage of the pods, but then it's not just about having a dashboard that says your pod has one view. It's actually going back to the salesperson like MailChimp and being like, woohoo, the pod's open. Like you've broken through. Congrats. Oh, keep an eye on this pod. They're sharing it. And just little triggers to sort of almost like pat the salesperson on the back that actually... Almost gamifying the experience yeah. a little like we spoke about there before. But I, I know at least because I've used various different tools and, and bits and bobs. I need to properly get to grips with, with Trumpet, which is kind of like my New Year's resolution. Because uh, I've like... <laughs> Come, come in and out but I guess the, the things that I used to use were like email trackers and like different CRMs and like they're just so like you said it's not ease of use like it, it's this thing that supposedly should be easy because I just attach it as a Gmail plugin and it just instantly 
just messes up my whole gmail and makes it look bizarre and i I just i can and all i really want to know is like yeah who's seen it who's seen this proposal or this email or the next step or the whatever it might be so how you know how much should i bother them or try and try and you know instigate the, the next step effectively so the fact that you know you're creating a tool that is kind of has that all wrapped into one i suppose but then also makes it easier and more enjoyable to go through that experience because i I guess that's one of the other things you just mentioned there but that's why i love the the sense of like collaboration it does often feel like the salesman and the person being set sold to are at odds of each other and realistically like that that shouldn't be the case it should either be a quick understanding of like okay well we can't really offer you anything and i you know i don't feel like i'm going to get any value out of this thing but what happens often is the case is like there probably is some value that could be exchanged there but the person being sold to just assumes that you're trying to do them over or do do one over or some something like that as if like your job is to somehow rip them off in other instances and it and it doesn't ever really come to anything or or just people kind of switch modes in their brain from it's, it's interesting when we in a, in one way we talked about the kind of blurring of lines between how you would act socially and then how you would act professionally right i actually think in a, in a negative way there may be some instances of like negative ways that we behave in our social life now seeping into maybe pr- professional life things like i guess like ghosting to a sense uh, not just from like a, a dating sense i guess but just from also from like a people just being terrible at replying to things and feeling like oh i get a million messages so i don't really need to give that thing a reply or and it, it, it now manifests itself in a business sense in terms of like you know i'm sure you'll be familiar with it Roy, but like you're chatting to somebody for a prolonged period of time and they're like yeah great i'm gonna you know they're looking like they're gonna close deals or something then they just completely disappear off the face of the earth and you see but you see them posting things xyz places and like in some instances you may even have their their number and you like give them a polite or you, but as soon as you give them maybe a whatsapp or a call or you get them on the phone they're like oh sorry like i didn't reply and they suddenly snap out of this weird um malaise of like trying to ignore you because they see you as like a, a salesman and and kind of reverse the other way all of that was a long ramble as to say trying to show both sides that it's more about collaboration rather than competition i guess is is like a powerful thing to do we got a message the other day talking about dating from one of our users that was just like just want to let you know but getting your notifications on trumpet is like hearing back from a first date like (laughs) let's go for dinner again she was like that was the enjoyment that i'm getting from getting my trumpet notifications that is what we intend to do but to hear it from users like just sparking that joy like it sales like normally it's not that joyful as a profession so to give them these just moments of joy that they're feeling in their personal life is just brilliant and then that just makes them feel instantly more connected the fact they want to reach out to us and tell us that as well um is amazing like we love stuff like that brilliant love that one of the hardest things for startups um is raising money when they're pre-product or pre-revenue for instance which is one of the things that you guys did but i guess one of the ways that you managed to do that is showing some form of traction that's the when we talked about the kind of irrational thing which is perhaps brand vision and the idea of like yeah this is going to be a unicorn this thing that rarely exists there's that it's then waylaid by the rational side of things which is hopefully if you've got revenue it's a graph that shows we're making more revenue every single month but if you don't have that i guess one of the things that you can do is other traction like word of mouth or social sentiment or in your guys case a a really great wait list which i i also think it is kind of an element of the brand and, and how you speak to people and how you engage people in particular again you guys have mentioned it a couple of times but both really active on linkedin great voice on linkedin great at kind of adding value so that people want to listen to what you guys have to say and it never feels like you're kind of selling something but it's always related to the brand in some way i wonder if you could give tips to anyone who are now trying to create a waitlist or create some kind of buzz or traction around their startup so that they can kind of have that slide in there in replacement of kind of revenue on how they should approach yeah creating a waitlist or approaching a content strategy to attract you know word of mouth or whatever that might be yeah you guys are pretty good at it so yeah that was always our strategy was okay let's go early let's get a waitlist exactly as you said because we knew we'd raise money pre-product pre-revenue it's what i say as an investor as well like it doesn't it doesn't have to cost you anything like the first thing we did even before building a waitlist was the three of us spoke to over 150 salespeople. so we just reached out to them cold on linkedin or we knew them and said hey 
we're thinking about building this product. Here's a type form or we'd love a 15 minute chat you pick and we just want to talk you over it. You tell us what's great, what's not, what you hate, what you don't. And we built like a big notion doc of all the positives, all the negatives, the objections, ideas that cost us nothing but time. So we had that as well. So we could show that when we were raising money as well as the wait list. We were like, well, look, we've spoken to all of these people and this is what they think about the idea. And we literally just had a one pager that we were showing them of like what the idea was going to be. So that was really positive. Then moving that into a wait list yeah we just put like a very simple landing page i mean we, we just read so many blogs about it like it definitely wasn't from our brains mm. like all three of us were just reading how slack did it how clubhouse did it how you know how all of these companies did it there's so many blogs out there that people can read for us we were lucky so we had built up our own personal profiles specifically on linkedin so i think people were excited to see what we were building as as a, as a threesome um for us after Design My Night and for Rory having left Hotjar. So I think we were lucky. We already had that audience. We teased the product a bit. We, we lent on the brand. So it was talking about, you know, showing off visuals and logos and talking about what we're trying to change rather than this is what it's going to do. Yeah. And I think that excited people. We had a viral mechanism built into the wait list as well. So when you got your first email, it had like a, if you share this URL, you'll move up the list or you'll get Trumpet for free, um, which I'm always a bit skeptical of, but I think about 22% of our wait list was from those referrals. So that actually worked really well. And that showed that the the wait list people really wanted to get to the product quicker. And then that's self-fulfilling because then the bigger the wait list come and the more you talk about how big the wait list is, the more you want to move up the wait list. So that then is like a flywheel that helps itself. We put together a really nice content strategy for people on the wait list. So from Rory's sort of sales expertise, and our sort of founder expertise, we did. We weren't telling them about Trumpet. We were yeah. saying like, here's a few podcasts you should listen to about cold outreach. Here's a Medium article you should read about closing deals. Here's mm-hmm. something from the HubSpot blog about X, Y, Z. And just trying to just give them useful information, which we'd send like once a week or once ten every 10 days. And then as we started to build the product and actually had visuals and videos, we then started to tease that to the wait list as well. So it's almost like an email community Mm. But we were also, we had lots of discussions about, do we build a community? And actually we decided not to. I think a lot of people think it's easy and go, well, let's just set up a Slack group. Um, But we were like, actually, if we're going to do a community, we need to do it properly. And we're we're not ready to start building out a community yet, nor do we maybe want to build out a community because you have to be able to add value. So we thought, let's keep it to email at this stage. Yeah, that that worked really nicely for us. It just kept people engaged. We had really high open rates of those emails, the viral mechanism worked. We were teasing a lot on our socials as well. You can then, again, it's self-fulfilling that, you know, if you get some big logos signing up, you can say, oh, you know, we've got these people that already signed up, don't miss out, etc." So I think it's just constantly feeding information mm. about the space you're working in and teasing the product. And that, yeah, enabled us to, to build. I think when we raised, we had about 2,000 on the wait yeah. list. So yeah, there was no magic, magic bullet or magic pill it was just yeah, really useful content and leveraging our networks that we'd built up. Yeah. I think you said about just ease of use of the platform itself, but people always think you need to reinvent the wheel of content strategy and every post needs to be something that's revolutionary that nobody's ever heard or something really scandalous that, you know, causes lots of controversy that nobody's ever heard. So I feel like the actually the, the thing you need to do is like just be consistent and also add value. So it's and again, that would have been said a million times across a million different podcast platforms, etc. But it is really that simple. It's just making like your post, for instance, Rory, is like some of the information on there, I'm sure you won't mind me saying, is like not things you can't find elsewhere, for instance, yeah. but you just make it super digestible and you make it super easy to understand. So people don't have to go and read a book about it or don't have to go and read five different articles to get all of that information in one place. And again, it, it kind of leans into brand building, but the, the trick to brand building is building physical and mental availability. And part of the way that you do that is just by consistently being top top of mind. So when people do think about I really hate using Google Slides for doing my sales. And then suddenly the next second they get an inbox, you know, an email from Trumpet that says, we've, you know, might not even be we've got this new feature, but here's five tips on doing sales. And then at the bottom it says, by the way, remember where a sales tool, you're like, ah, yeah, cool. Let me try, let me try that out. And it is really a war of attrition in in, in many ways in, in that sense. And that's what building brand is all about. It's like this thing that works in parallel with sales that, that builds 
a groundswell over time till it gets to a certain point where there's like a, a tipping point effectively and it just it keeps growing 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 as you grow as a as a company so yeah great great point you mentioned there actually like building community which is sort of one of the things I want to chat about but in a in a different way I totally agree it's hard to we, we even had it a small world right like we have our we, we now the word that I guess at the beginning we called them a community but now our word is roster and we call it like a talent roster effectively the same way as when you go to a production agency they've got like a roster of directors basically and I guess it's kind of like a half-assed way of saying community in a way because they're like 30 percent towards that way yes we're in communication with them but are we doing things outside of possibly like working with them or like casual conversations or making concerted effort to do that probably not as much as we should be now hence why I don't want to call it a community because I think a community is something that you're actively engaging with and actively building at any one time but one of the things that you guys have been really good at is what we like to call customer council I guess at Small World and we've helped clients set this up but in some instances it might be a Slack group or a WhatsApp group of their top 10 to 100 best customers in some instances it might just be like an email thread like you said there where you're regularly engaging these same people to say what do you think about this and it might be what do you think about this new feature for instance could you mind trying it out for us and we'll give you a voucher or it might be what do you think about this piece of comms that we might be about to put out um, or this these two different routes of design that we might be looking at for our brand and people really overlook the importance of doing that both in building a brand but also in building a product so I was wondering if you could like just give a little bit of insight into how often you guys do that, how you do it possibly, what ways you're consistently engaging, like your your power users, I guess you would say, right? Do you have something as formal as like a customer council or is it um, a bit more informal? Like how does that work for you guys? As a, yeah, whole, whole load of moving pieces on that front. I think the groups, we've got Slack connect channels with a lot of our kind of key base users and, and power users. Um, so that's just a direct channel with us, our tech lead, our head of CS, and then most of their users where they can ask us questions, give feedback. We can share looms, videos of you know product updates that are upcoming get their thoughts on it so it's not really a slack community it's a little bit more focused than that um and then alongside that from early on when we had the wait list we were drip feeding people in and at the start we were spending more and more time with people how they're using the product talking them through it getting their feedback showing them figma mock-ups and it's going to look like x y and z you know how would you use this would this be useful so i think it was really diving deep into different size companies, different use cases, different problems that we were solving. And then outside of that, I think we've just always been available. Like we're building Trumpet together with our users, not for them as cringe as it sounds. So we always invite them to like, you've got our email, you can chat to us anytime, anywhere, LinkedIn, email, whatever it is. And like, we will respond. We're always happy to jump on quick calls with them and listen to, you know, the success they've had, the struggles they've had. And that's also baked into the product itself. So we have a visible product roadmap where they can see what's being built and when they can't vote it. They can make their own feature requests. So I feel like people feel very included and part of the trumpet journey. And then we've seen that the result of that is them sharing trumpet proactively with their network. So we'll get an email saying, Hey, we want to introduce you to so-and-so because like we've been so impressed with trumpet or it's helped us do X and Y. I think you'd really help this company. And like, we've never ever pushed that. That's just from being as attentive, but also always listening and caring to every size company that we work with. I think also quite often businesses will be like, oh, let's just go after enterprise, big ticket. That's our focus. But we're very big believers in PLG. So we want it to be as easy to use as self-serve as possible for every size business. So we can support the small guys, but also the big guys as well. And we deliberately try not to treat any business we speak to, whether it's a one-man band or a 10,000 person size company, any differently. There's always, especially in these early days, we can afford to give that approach. So I say it's not like a a one ticket answer. There's a few moving pieces going Mm -hmm. on, but um, it's always sort of user first. I like that balance. Yeah. I like the, like you mentioned there, but that balance between, I guess you call it like intentional and, and irreverent communication so like you said maybe having having that slack grab or um, slack group or that product roadmap for instance which i think is like a brilliant idea but then also just having the thing of like open door policy on yeah. you know come and chat to me for 15 minutes if you've got something to chat about which is really cool and and also the again we've mentioned mailchimp a lot in this discussion but the point you made around uh, not not alienating so not alienating like smb clients or yeah smaller businesses for instance like that's what mailchimp was effectively built on as a brand like and that's what because because they spoke to those brands and businesses then they later appealed to the more en- enterprise level clients and they're they're out competing enterprise level businesses of in their category i guess which is yeah super interesting to sort of think about i think also when they're early adopters there's a degree of patience and understanding and like willingness to 
take on something that might not be 100% perfect. So I think you've got to reward that with the care and like mm. the sort of thanks that they deserve and showing them that, yeah, you are listening and that the feedback that they give does feedback into the product. They can see that, especially in the early days, you can afford to do that. You've got the time to really listen and act and move fast and ship features quick that people ask for. It always does, you know, it becomes increasingly difficult as you scale, but um, I think it's key for the early days. And fortunately, that was something I saw and learned at Hotjar. Their success, big PLG company, they were so community driven, you know, really big on feedback. They didn't have a Slack group. They just built a brand around people loving Hotjar and the product itself. So we've tried to take inspiration from companies like that and, and bake it into how we approach what we're building. Cool. Brilliant. Actually, a random thing that pops into my head as well, based on that MailChimp chat, but when you're talking about emails, how, how do you guys do your, um, <laughs> your emails? Do you use MailChimp for that still? You're just doing that off, off the email. HubSpot, aren't we? HubSpot and ConvertKit. We should have one. Yeah. <laughs> our, our, our customer communications, we send like a, you know, new features, email yeah. stuff. That's that's all through um, HubSpot. It's yeah. obviously linked up to the CRM. And we use Intercom as well for like email sequences. Because obviously inter- Intercom, you can see who's using your product when, mm. what pages they're visiting. So you can get quite a good understanding of who's using the product, how, yeah. and then trigger sequences based on product usage, which is really cool. Mm. So it sounds like someone needs to make an all-in-one tool for that then. <laughs> <laughs> Cheaper as well, please. <laughs> cool. I, we're kind of like going toward, towards the end of like the, the chat, I guess. But the, one of the things we spoke about was this like building and building like an employer brand, I guess. And again, really love like all of the insights behind like the um, onboarding process that you've given for for like em- employees are, um, joining the company. You guys have both been pretty vocal about building kind of like this diverse, inclusive like workspace, for instance, but also the, the types of hires that you're bringing on and not only in terms of where, where they're geographically located in the world but also sort of their their background experiences both sort of lived but also their their actual skills i wonder if you touch a little bit on like what it's been like and you guys do have like a physical office for instance but i guess a bit like us but one of those businesses born in and around the kind of covid age in a way this hybrid flexible work environment has been you, you've kind of like grown to that and, and, you know, aren't definitely aren't alienating it at all. Like how have you been building an employer brand and what are some of the things that I think that set you apart from possibly some of the other businesses that are out there? Um, both, I guess, intentional and irreverent things that we spoke about. So, yeah, so we're trying to learn a lot from Design My Night. Uh, 10 years there, we had a team of just over 100. But by the time we exited, it was pre-COVID. So it was, you can call it old school. So everyone had to come to the office and we had an office in Hoxton. But we were so team focused there as founders and we were like a family and we like really cared about our team. Um, They could see we really cared about them. They almost treated us like elder brothers. So they knew they could come with us with like personal issues, professional issues. We'd never judge them. We just wanted the best for them, both personally and professionally. We invested a lot of time in growing them as well. We wanted a lot of our managers to actually have worked at the company before and actually work their way up the company. So rather than just hiring in managers, it was like, well, let's train you to be managers. Let's train you as your job and then and you'll work your way up. That just created a culture of people that just wanted Design My Night to win, both as a company for them, they had options as well, but just for them, but also for us, which we were just like really touched by, like they wanted it to succeed for Andrew and myself. So we wanted to bring that element to Trumpet, you know, an open door policy. Again, that sounds cringe, but people can come to us with anything and we're not going to judge you and we're not going to castigate you. We just want the best for you. Like we, we hire people that we know are hard workers. We know they're want to succeed they're excellent at what they do so if you're going to have like personal issues or something that comes up it's not your fault so let's just let's just deal with it and let's sort it out as as a as so as like a family rather than as like boss and employee so i think that's that's integral to everything we do diversity is really important to us it's not just a buzzword for us so you know we we want to hire people from you know different backgrounds different sexualities for me that just creates a much better team uh, a much better skill set and i think that's what opened my eye we had loads of discussions about office versus not office and i think that's what's opened my eyes is that being able to hire people from wherever like we've got an amazing 
amazing developer who's in Nigeria that at Design My Night we wouldn't have hired. And he's incredible, adds so much as a talent, but also as to the culture as well. So I think that's really opened my eyes that you can have this split workforce that all don't have to come to the office. How do you make sure that you, because again, it's one of the things that we actually see is like in our process, because obviously we have a process when we sign people up to the roster, which is, is vetting both for making sure this is a person who brings a different skill set, but also maybe brings a different mindset as well to, to anyone we add into the roster. We don't want a 10 of the same creative. We don't want 50 of the same copywriter. Like all of them, ha- the whole premise that we have is that we match you with the, you know, the specific person who's particularly brilliant for your brief, no matter where they are in the world and, and bring them into our team. But just interesting because you, you mentioned it on a couple of points there, but how do you intentionally make sure when you're interviewing hires or bringing new people into the team that, that like, do you have a quota for instance? Like lots of people have enterprise clients like we'll just put a quota for diversity. Right. And it actually has more of a detrimental impact, perhaps similar for, I guess when you're sourcing talent or trying to find out, okay, well this person's in a different part of the uh, world where we, maybe we can't get that FaceTime with them to sometimes make sure if they're talking the talk or being the real deal okay well how do we vet them then for their what are the different ways that we can set up to vet them without actually physically being able to meet them like what what are some of the ways that you do that either intentionally or unintentionally I think intentionally I don't really like quotas I think the important thing when it comes to sort of diversity of of character and person is uh, taking out your own bias when interviewing and I think every not everyone but a lot of people will just have bias prejudice that's just been baked into them it doesn't mean you're a bad person necessarily so I think it's being very aware of your own biases or maybe prejudices and really working hard to put them aside when interviewing someone and just looking at this person purely as like a blank canvas on exactly what you were saying, like, you know, what skill set, what mindset can they bring that we might not already have in the business? So I don't think we would ever hire someone just because they are of a different ethnicity, but we're very fortunate the applications we get in are quite broad anyway, because maybe that's what we're projecting out. And it's it's def- always hiring the right person, no matter of what they are, but it's taking out that bias when we interview. And is it very much a come to us type thing or do you, would you use a combination of recruiters? Do you use, uh, again, you guys have brilliant networks in, in yourself, so you, you probably can just post that job posting, right? And you get inundated with um, different applications and it's different for different roles, right, in particular. But yeah, is it, how, are you, how are you seeking out your talent in, in startup world these days? I'd say with the, the noise that we've made, there is, there's definitely a good healthy amount of inbound, but I wouldn't say that's therefore easier um, or makes it easier. I think we still proactively reach out to candidates. So we will we'll go hunting ourselves and you know, look for the right people with the right backgrounds and, and see if they're looking to move elsewhere. We have engaged with recruiters before. We've tried different job platforms like Otter's Awesome um, you know, and, and Cord for developers as well. But yeah, we don't get complacent with just because we have inbound interest, that's, that's enough. You, I think you've always got to be hungry and look for the right talent. Don't just wait for them to come to you, especially in this current market. It's not easy for anyone. And it's such a transient market, you know, but I think in terms of the recruitment process, we treat it very much as two way. It's they're taking a bet on you as well. You know, it's a super early stage startup, you know, in this, in this climate, there's jobs that will last you for life and that kind of thing. So we try and remove the, the feeling of it being an interview when we're speaking to them. It's like, let's just get to know each other, you know, your skills, your experience speaks for itself. Let's we'll dive into that later. Like, who are you as a person? What do you want out of this role? And, you know, every company has values and some say they do just for the sake of it, but we truly do believe in ours and always put those at the forefront when we're speaking to them and seeing if they do align. And then, you know, we go through a couple of stages and then we bring in a task because I think it's a really good way to identify if they're tire kickers and how they approach work. Do they ask for feedback? Do they ask questions when they're doing the task? Like how do they engage throughout that process? So I think there's, there's lots of steps you can take to make sure that that investment is right, both for you, but also for them, because yeah, it's, it's a two way thing. How do you mitigate with, with things? Because it's, it's a very good point and it's something that we do, either a task or we do like a portfolio walkthrough. So getting them to walk yeah. us through a particular case study in their portfolio rather than doing original work. But I just wondered if, yeah, how, how do you 
do you ever like pay for people to do tasks or do you yeah basically that i guess that's my main question yeah absolutely some... people have lives day jobs you know we yeah. can't expect them to go and spend hours on something um, yeah. for free and i feel like it, it just yeah it removes any awkwardness and that that question as well but um yeah it's something that i saw at hot jam brought it into into trumpet it worked really well there yeah just learning learning from experience brilliant cool lots of uh small welcome borrow from this as well um ironically or maybe not ironically the Last thing that I didn't want to want to dive into is the brand challenge, which is what we typically do at the end of this, which is talking about a challenge that you guys are facing at the moment, or maybe not facing at the moment, but are just looking ahead. And I guess maybe this one is more of like a, a looking ahead when you guys want to pose it. I know we've we've chatted about it already, but I've got an idea. Yeah, oh, we we actually had an existing one, but let, we can do both. Let's let's have, let's <laughs> let's have the existing one first, and then okay. let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay. So I think that the question was how do we, and it's one of the things we spoke about here. How do we make sure that we still appeal? You know. We have a we keep our fun, cheeky, Mailchimp-esque tone of voice, but we don't alienate enterprise level clients or customers or stakeholders even from that point of view. So that was the the kind of challenge that was posed, which I think many in B2B can can relate to. Is like even even again, I can relate to that in terms of you want to inject a lot of tone and 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 particularly us as like a young company and, and like young founders in particular, one of the things we feel we don't have is possibly that elder experience or whatever that might be so you maybe try to dial up some of the professionalism so they think oh they're a, that's a professional young man rather than just a colloquial young man but that can sometimes work against you because you want to keep this fun tone of voice effectively or, or fun personality rather i had a little think about this but and it's interesting because it's buys into a b2c brand that we're finally working off uh, working on at the moment who are in a like the medical space, I guess you could say, um, without saying what their name is, but they're they're in the kind of medical but consumer medical space or something that you might subscribe to. But they they actually weirdly talk very scientifically and almost like a B two B brand in that sense. And one of the things we're doing with them is helping understand what one what their brand personality is, but then what their tone of voice is. And I think everyone uses tone of voice as a catch all for the way you speak or the sorry the 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 personality your brand has which is actually not correct brand personality or brand character is you know what you might look like you might do like a celebrity you know you could always do like these brand celebrity type things basically and like that's your personality most of the time but then your tone of voice changes right if you're angry you've got an angrier tone if you're with friends you've got a more colloquial tone if you're in a professional setting you've got a more professional tone of voice so tone of voice is actually how that brand personality and that brand character flexes across format and place I guess you could say one of the things that we we always do actually which is a really good workshop task to do I suppose when when trying to define a bit of that tone or, or how how we can make sure that we're, we're not alienating certain sections or certain users is really simple writing up maybe let's say the five common situations that a copywriter within your business would find themselves in so for you guys it might be um pitch deck right or pit or pitching to somebody and like investor audience it might be writing an email for or like copywriting for an email it might then be like social post and then maybe like customer service, right? Those are probably like the touch points of where you might write copy for the brand. And then you take that and you just say, okay, well, when the person who's interacting with our brand comes to this place, how are they, uh, what are they, what are they feeling? Get inside their mind. What, what are the free ways that they're feeling? So taking investor, for instance, as an example that we spoke about earlier, largely, I guess, it, let's talk about like institutional investor, for instance, they're probably coming into the room with a, a bit of a set, and this is assumption generalization, of course, but they might be coming into the room where they've seen a million pitches already, they're, they're feeling maybe a bit fatigued from from seeing those pitches, they feel like maybe they've seen it all before as well. So maybe a bit like apathetic to, towards those. And they're also feeling maybe a bit like knackered or just like break, just just their brains a bit fried from lots of lots of decks um, and lots of pitches so that's their, their mindset okay well so how then does our copy or our brand how do we need to convey our brand personality what tone do we need to put across to make them feel the opposite of that or make or, or make them feel the way that we want them to feel which is likely inspired a feeling of like clarity as well and and informed or to the point basically and then we then we write out you know we we take an example of copy that uh, existed previously and we rewrite it with those words in mind so inspired to the point whatever that might be usually it's it's free done in freeze 
and it's a super simple task to just show and then at the end you put it into a little document that has like the the old copy and the new copy and you can give that to any copywriter who comes into business to say look when you're on social when you're doing a, a post for Instagram or Twitter or LinkedIn the way that we want you to talk is you know fun colloquial short sentences whatever that might be but when you're replying to somebody in a sales email for instance or talking to somebody it's slightly slightly longer more evidence-based whatever that might be again it's more of a professional tone so i don't think your brand personality or brand character should ever change like that is that's your personality right you've got to be true to yourself but the tone and the way that you deliver that 100 percent can change yeah is that helpful does that yeah i think that's a really good way of looking at it i think it is quite easy to just think everything has to be catch-all and i think even as binary as your website versus your product and thinking who's going to be looking at your website. So let's say you you sell to SMEs and enterprise, probably on your website, you're going to get the sales director of Microsoft having a look. And if it's too playful and out there, they might be put off by that. But actually, it's probably then the SDRs or AEs that are using the product who are probably younger as well. So actually in the product, you can maybe have a bit more fun, but then being very cognizant of their end user. Trumpet is then sending as pods to their users. Can't be um, too crazy because they'll be like, well, that's not our brand personality as Microsoft, but still having fun within the product with your users and maybe not portraying as much wackiness on like your brochure and then your your outward content apart from social where i think it's it's fine to be a bit more cheeky so i think yeah that's a really good point to, to to break it down even even deeper on all the different touch points of the business yeah and i guess why you know great copywriters get the bring home the bacon i guess because they can flex between those you know you get some people who are amazing email copywriters or some people who are amazing advertising copywriters or whatever that might be and then you have just amazing copywriters in general and their superpower their super skills that they can flex between not only the form of writing so the you know shorter sentences paragraphs whatever that it, that form of writing is, is needed but then also the tone in which you should deliver across that and and i guess also like visual so there'll be designers who can design for those delivering in that way making something that feels more fun and playful and something that feels a little bit more serious Rory what was your challenge that you wanted to pose funny enough it was literally it was exactly that because we were speaking about <laughs> yeah when you said you written it down I thought it might be that one um, yeah yeah I think it is an interesting angle for us because like Trumpet the whole brand is around like stand out from the crowd make some noise be bold be brave and it is always having that balance I think there is an assumption that oh enterprise equals formality mm. it's not always the case and Nick mm. makes a really good point who is your end user? And yes, maybe the buyer, the CFO, whatever it might be, would look at your website and be like, that's too gimmicky or, you know, it's too, it's not what they're used to, but it's bringing it, bringing in your, your tone, your, your brand personality in the right moments um, where it's needed. So if it's something a bit more transactional, functional, you know, like a password reset or the admin dashboard or a report, then yeah, you can tone it down a bit where they just want the facts, but difficult one to, to nail. I think, yeah, you've got to understand your cha- your channels and then, kind of work backwards i think we've got a joke in our password reset email though well maybe we'll turn that down <laughs> i did say, i did th- i did think that as i said it most other companies Jokes everywhere yeah. although I, I would i would actually argue the reverse and that's again that kind of mailchimp thing but sometimes in the places where you least expect it is yeah. where it's the most it's like a surprise and delight the places where you yeah you know password reset is something that's quite frustrated so again if we're talking about that how is someone feeling when they have to reset their password yeah a bit frustrated maybe a bit silly because they're like oh, dude, yeah why is it one of my free passwords i you know a bit, bit embarrassed yeah. so then actually then is the time to make them feel a little bit you know more happy i suppose or, yeah. or, or, or yeah. a frustrated customer who's upset on intercom and then you try and be funny back and they're like well yeah that's, yeah, that's, that's pick yeah. your moments <laughs> i guess it, i guess with the password reset is probably more their fault whereas yeah, yeah. in the customer <laughs> successfully it might be your fault so yeah and then yeah the final final thing is just we've had a chat this about this offline but i wonder if you could do it for the pod is we always ask people who come on for a brand and actually Roy, if you want to chuck somebody in as well uh, feel free to but we always ask for a brand owner that you know and love uh, to come on next um Yes, so two really cool D2C brands that I use and like. So one is called Fills, which is a sustainable sort of bathroom brand refill concept, but making refill very easy. And they were actually one of the first to to do that. It's become very in vogue now. So Anna is the founder of Fills. She's brilliant. She was a makeup artist, actually, originally like a, a top level makeup artist, made the jump into setting up Fills. 
she's amazing and uh, she's learned everything to do with like sustainability and packaging and ingredients and quite incredible to watch. So I recommend anyone having a look at Phil's. And then the other one is a friend called Luke who owns a brand new, very new brand actually called Wednesday's Domain, which is a a non-alcoholic wine, um, which I think is a huge category uh, that no one's really cracked. And when I speak to Luke about it, you know, their, their challenge is if you ask someone to name a non-alcoholic wine, they can't because no one's built a brand around it. Um, And that's what they're really trying to do is create a a cool brand around a non-alcoholic wine they're doing lots of amazing stuff beyond the brand as well like about the liquid but they're really really new but i really love their branding um i like their messaging i like their i love their non-alcoholic red wine as well i use it i drink it so yeah those those two (laughs) those two are are really good or anyone's out in there or not you you Good yeah, luck. I can bring one in on the, the B2B SaaS side. Yeah, so there's an awesome brand in the sales space called Pocus. Their founder, Alex, has done a really good job of building community, leveraging the brand on you know a product which inherently is quite technical, very data-driven. Uh, it's basically taking product insights and, and putting it at the forefront in, into salespeople's hands, insights into which customers might be worth speaking to in the world of PLG and, and product-led sales. And I think the brand itself, similar-ish to Trumpet in that, like, Pocus, it's about creating magic, like moments and things like that. And if you talk about emerging sales tech, everyone will be speaking about that brand. And I think it's down to the founder and how they've put themselves out on socials and things like that. So I definitely recommend taking a look at them. Cool. Brilliant. I've been Dan. If you like the podcast, please share it on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or even just to a mate. If you or anyone you know runs a brand that you think would be perfect for small talk, then get them to hit us up on hello at smallworld.marketing. We're Small World, and this was Small Talk.